This episode is brought to you by Left of Boom. We empower leaders to respond to crisis proactively and with confidence. We are facing a societal reset that will force us to adapt to a new normal. In this, the second series of Crisis Talks, I'm calling on business owners, risk professionals, safety professionals, entrepreneurs, politicians, government and emergency services, anyone with an idea out there that they want to share to come and join me on the podcast. We want to use this as an opportunity or a platform for people to share ideas how we can work together to get through this. It's time to mobilise our collective minds to combat this world pandemic. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got one of the all-time greats back again uh, in Bill Bestick. You loved his episode last year where we spoke about cognitive bias. Uh, he was a former NZ, NZ SAS officer. He was then a kidnap uh, and ransom negotiator. He was then uh, and now is an anaesthetist working within the New South Wales, uh, working in New South Wales as an anaesthetist. And recently, just last few days, mate, I think you locked off that uh, commercial license. Tell us about it. I see you barely got the license. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I took it off. So, yes, um, alternate career lined up, commercial helicopter pilot. Here we go. Well, mate, given the, the, the amount of support that has been shown for, for my podcast, especially, especially our interview, mate, I think that you've also got an alternative career in this space as well, ready to go. So, <laughs> well, so. In the current climate, alternate careers are useful, right? Well, it's it's interesting because, as we we're sort of alluding to there before, anyway, um, you're probably one of the most adaptive guys that I've ever ever met, uh, who's managed to adapt to multiple different careers, as we've heard. How important how important do you think that adaptive leadership or that ability to adapt to these changing environment is now more than ever? Yeah, look, I think this is um, a great opportunity really in many ways I, I had a we've had quite a bit of distress at work as you can imagine by work i mean in the, in the public hospital i work at a, a tertiary uh, trauma hospital raw north shore hospital in sydney and there's been a lot of distress there amongst nursing staff doctors because we're uh scared really of mm. what's coming and uh scared of being infected and infecting our families. And what I've really noticed is how much our former careers, people like you and I in the military, how that was fairly standard work day, you know, in terms of dealing with leadership and, and sometimes staring mortality in the face, but still having to do your job mm. where for a lot of, people in the hospital and across Australia, maybe this is the first time a lot of people have had to really think about, well, geez, is this, am I going to get affected? Like is my mortality under threat? And I think it's, it's healthy. It's good for us sometimes to stare down our own mortality and, and take stock and then work out what kind of individual we want to be and how we want to adapt to that. Very interesting perspective, mate, given the, Talking about opportunity in this sort of time is is often the farthest thing from people's minds. But I'm really keen to hear again a bit further about what you think about that because, you know, like you said, people are very scared at the moment. But then there's some people that do look at this as an opportunity. How can 
people take that advice and apply that in their own context? Well, I think, you know, leadership's a term we bandy around and, and can cheapen what it means if we're not careful. But leadership's a key message that I've been trying to peddle at work a bit. And that means you being, in my mind, it means you being the best version of yourself. Uh, to me, the people that show the greatest courage are people who are working at checkout at Woolies at the moment. Hmm. It, it's not me as an anaesthetist um, or the frontline healthcare workers because, because we have preparation for infected patients. We have protective equipment and we're developing procedures to deal with that. The Woolies checkout person doesn't and they don't have protective equipment and they're coming to people face to face every day and still having to front up for work. So, so that, that to me is a style of leadership. That's, that's what courage looks like, right? Courage is being scared, but stepping up anyway, saddling up anyway, as John Wayne would say, you know? <laughs> um, so I think it's okay to acknowledge that we're scared as a group of people and fear is contagious with you and I've seen that, but so is courage. And, you have the ability to be a leader within your own family. Each one of us has an ability to be a leader in our little group, to our friends, to our family, um, to our society, to the people that are around us. You know, if you're in the checkout person, you can show leadership by having a positive attitude, by encouraging people, by allowing them a distraction in their everyday conversation, keeping things in perspective. So, you know, this is a, I said to a group of nurses the other day, I said, this is the kind of thing we want to look forward in six months, fast forward yourself six months and look back and be proud of what we did and how we behaved and how we mm. held ourselves. And each one of us can do that, right? Yeah, I think that's, that's right. And what we can control is exactly how we behave and our attitude to that. I suppose the, the, the fear though that you are talking about though is very difficult to comprehend because you know, for us that are out there on the street, you know, you guys are on the front line, like you say, you do have the measures in place to prepare. Um, a lot of people don't have that ability to control the outcome or feel like they don't have the ability to control the outcome. So, so what advice would you give to them about that and how they could best prepare themselves for, you know, for their own sort of situation? Yeah, good question. I mean, we certainly don't have the answers where we are. There's, and there's an actual you know, there's a big gap in, in the unknown for what we're dealing with too. Um, right now, there's a great sense of the unknown. We're, we've cancelled elective surgery. Things are actually yep. quite eerily quiet at work. No one yep. quite knows what to do with themselves. And that's part of that that problem. You know, it's, it's harder when you're waiting in ambush than when you're ambushed, right? Because <laughs> when you're ambushed, you just react. It's on. This is the waiting. This is the anticipation. This is where real fear can start to seep in because we don't know what this is going to look like. And maybe that's the same for everyone across Australia. We, we've, we're seeing reports of Italy and the UK. We, you know, I've been getting text messages from colleagues in the UK that say, hey, we're about to go to ships to hand ventilate patients because we don't have ventilators, as in, someone sits there squeezing a bag for a patient in shits. Like that's how, that's the kind of dire stuff we're hearing. And we're thinking, mm. well, shit, is that going to be us? Um, yeah. The reality is we don't know 
all we can do is do our best and prepare for it. And I think in some ways it's easier for us because we're just, if we get overwhelmed, well, we'll just step up and do what needs to be done and, and get busy doing it. It's probably harder to think, well, well, what do I do if I'm not in that frontline role? Hmm. And I think the message there is, is simple. Stop the spread of it. Yeah. And we know what needs to be done. That that's not difficult. It's, it's the fact that we don't like it and we can't see it. So we, it's hard to measure that the measures that you're doing as an individual mm. by social distancing, by not going out, by washing your hands, it's, it's impossible to measure whether that's effective or not. So I think that's really what's difficult. And, you know, when you're involved in a crisis, often it's quite short lived and it's got an end point, you get busy. Yep. This is one of those long lasting, it's a bit like soldiers on a deployment, you know, soldiers are used to this you know you go for mm. six months or five months as you know and and the whole time you're under a, a level of stress but there's peaks and troughs of it this is kind of australia's deployment yeah the difficulty here is here is though that the the duration is often uh the main question that people are asking but there's simply no answer real or no real comparison unless we're looking internationally Yes. Um, I mean, we've seen the dates around China around two two months, but that I suppose doesn't necessarily consider second waves or anything along those lines. What are you guys doing? What are you seeing from the preparedness side? I mean, you, you, like I said, your expertise from from military and after that, you know, in consulting, really sets you up well for you know analysing these types of situations and looking what's being done proactively or otherwise. But what are you actually seeing happening? in the system to, to prepare for this? Well, I guess there's different layers there, isn't there, Grant? So we've got, you know, we're watching what's happening at the most senior prime ministerial government level. Yep. At the New South Wales health level, and then at the hospital executive level, the head of department level, and then and then what's actually happening in the corridors and operating theatres of, of where we work. And, and I think there's different levels of response and preparation at each one of those tiers. Um, what we're basically doing at the coalface is taking what the data that we know from overseas, Wuhan province, um, the UK, Italy, Spain, yep. and our colleagues in the US and saying, what do we, what do we think we need to do? Um, we know these patients will present in respiratory distress because those that don't, we're sending home. So those that mm -hmm. come back, uh, their lungs have failed essentially. I think of it like a really, really bad lung infection, like a pneumonia. Yeah, okay. Yep. Where the oxygen can get it, you know, air is getting into the lungs, but it can't be transferred to the blood because of blockages of mucus and muck and infection. And then the lung actual architecture, the structure of the lung can start to break down to the point that you just can't exchange the gases, oxygen and carbon dioxide back and forth across the lung like you normally do. Um, so at that point, the person's ability to oxygenate their blood is failing. They're working hard to breathe and they can no longer sustain the effort of breathing. Mm -hmm. So th these are the patients that we're anticipating in great numbers. So once that person arrives, well, we need to take over breathing for them. How do we do that? We need to get them asleep um, because you know, you're know you not gonna tolerate me putting a tube down your throat awake. So you've got to put someone asleep, um, get a tube, plastic, literally a plastic tube down into the windpipe, the trachea, and attach it to a mechanical ventilator. And then ventilate for them for however long it takes. And we know in this particular case, um, unlike things like SARS potentially, 
that people might need to be ventilated for quite a period of time, two, three weeks or more. So that means you're going to run out of ventilators pretty quickly. Okay. So like at North Shore is a major tertiary hospital in Sydney. You might be looking at, if you counted all the ventilators in intensive care in the operating theater, maybe 80 ventilators, if you were lucky. Yeah. So given we want to 60% of our surgery is emergency and trauma surgery, we need to keep some ventilators free for them. Yeah. So okay. maybe after 60 people are done, then, then what do you do with the 61st person that needs a ventilator? So, so that's really our point of fear. And that's what's mm. happened in Italy, you know, and they've had to make hard cutoffs, right? If you're over 65 and you've got another condition, like a heart condition or something, you know what? We're not even going to put you on a ventilator. Okay. Um, so that's kind of our preparation is like, how are we going to manage these patients? And we're looking at creative solutions, like putting two people on one ventilator, for right. example. Um, okay. And also how do we, uh, the greatest point of transmission is what's aerosolized. So the bugs are coming out of that lung and spreading all through the, the room. Yeah. Okay. We know yep. it stays alive in that room for 30 minutes, no matter how much you can clean all the surfaces, mm -hmm. but for it to be 99% clear, you need to wait. 30 minutes. That's how much the stuff's aerosolizing. If you've got yep. high flow oxygen on someone, well, as they breathe into that mask, you're now blasting it all around the room. Okay. Yeah. So how are we going to get ourselves right next to that patient's mouth, get the breathing tube in without them coughing, spluttering, breathing all over us and infecting all of us? Because not only do we want to protect ourselves, but if, if we get infected, then we knock out your healthcare workforce, right? Yeah. Um, so, the, so what we've been doing is training using um, high fidelity simulation to think about different ways of doing that and learning from each other and posting it onto YouTube so we can learn from each other about how to best do it. Um, for the elective patients that we had up till now, we've been intubating them as in putting the breathing tube down as if they had COVID because we want to develop Practice our it. techniques. Exactly. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And there's, when there's also an expectation, we think that maybe up to 15% of our normal patients will probably be COVID infected that we don't know about. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we don't want to find out we've been doing an elective case and then three days later you go, oh, by the way, that, that elective case was infected. So now all the people around it uh, are stood down. At our hospital, we've had anaesthetists already diagnosed positive with COVID. And that means um, some of them are having difficulty breathing already. And that means all the people around them are also being isolated. So you lose six or seven people in one hit. So Yeah, that's a whole team basically for one patient, is it? Yeah, we might have uh, 80 anaesthetists, say, at Royal North Shore, uh, 80 plus. You're going to run out of people pretty quickly. So we're looking at creative solutions like the surgeons paradoxically at the moment, don't have a lot to do because COVID doesn't require an operation and we're cancelling surgery. Yeah, okay, yeah. So we're looking at training some of our surgical colleagues in the use of managing ventilators. We're looking at um, turning operating theatres and recovery rooms into makeshift uh, war-style uh, intensive care units. We're looking at empty buildings in Sydney that we might have to filled with patients. We're looking at every possible solution because we're seeing what's happening overseas. Sounds really dire, mate. Well, yes and no. I mean, I've realized that in the last week or so that in, in our single-minded determination to plan well, we've 
and those of us involved in the detail of planning and training mm. get busy and quite focused on the solution. And, and in a yeah. way that's quite therapeutic, right? But when you're actually on the periphery of that, as a lot of our, as a large numbers of our say nursing staff are that aren't involved directly in the planning, if they're not a senior nurse, it's actually really distressing because mm. they're not seeing all the planning that's going on. They're just sitting and waiting and wondering what's happening. And I think the forgotten piece has been transmitting some leadership and messaging to everyone to say, uh, look, it, it, we don't know what it's going to look like. There's not some secret plan that we're withholding from you. It's just that yeah. we, we're just busy got this busy. wide range <laughs> of options. Exactly, mate. Yeah. Um, and you know what? When it plays out, it'll actually be easier because, you know, uh, I mean, look at, it must be in the same with people like Cosgrove and his planning team before you go into Timor, you know, you look mm. at the millions of different options you might have, and then it finally rolls out, you know, it's always tougher for the planning teams that are looking at future plans because they're always developing the contingency plans, which is hard. Yeah. And it's always, it's a, yeah, it's a bit of a, an exercise really in its own right, looking at, mm. um, at different options and worst case options and, most likely case scenarios and, and risk-based assessments on all of those. So uh, and it's, and I, I think people, we're forgetting a little bit the, the stress component on people. Now I um, uh, chatted to one of my uh, senior helicopter pilot colleagues uh, recently in the police force and, and they're, some of the work they're doing is unfortunately relate around body recovery from the numbers yeah. of, of people in our society that are just not coping. I mean, we've potentially forgetting a little bit that people are genuinely scared and looking for leadership and reassurance and that sometimes we've just got to put things in perspective and say, look, this is not the end of the world. We will get through this. We will prevail. Um, large numbers of people get infected and some people will die, uh, but it's not going to wipe out the Australian society. And if we're sensible and measured and collective, then we'll get through it psychologically intact as well. So I think that's probably equally important as the, because if people feel there's no hope, then they won't do any of the measures either. Yeah, no, you're right. And that's the, that's a, that's a worry is that it's, it's so insurmountable. You become um, paralyzed in your decision making, the old analysis paralysis, where exactly. it ends up that people just don't do anything. So, exactly. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is where the assessment comes in, then, mate. So you're seeing what's happening at those different levels, at the different tiers. How how are you reading the leadership that's being shown across those different tiers at the moment? Let's start at the top um, with the prime minister at this stage. Uh, well, look, I'm. And it's a personal opinion only. I'm disappointed with the leadership from the prime minister and from the medical officers that have, have um, been given that message. And, uh, you know, I, I know some of those individuals personally, but I don't agree with the messaging. And uh, I think it's been confusing and conflicting and open to exploitation. And I, I contrast that with what I see happening across the Tasman where there's uh, and to coin the ABC term, their report, which I think was a beautiful term, they said there's clarity of message in New Zealand that we're not seeing here. And I think that's, I couldn't summarize that better myself. There's clarity around what you need to do as an individual. And I think that message from the prime minister in New Zealand 
if you're not sure how to behave, behave as if you're infected with COVID. Mm. That, that simplifies the solution and their tiered response, which is, you know, I mean, exactly like an alert state response that everybody can yeah. see these conditions exist. Then we're at this alert state and that means X. And then people can see for themselves, all right, well, I can interpret myself once the conditions improve, then I'll, mm. and so on and so on. Here there's conflicting while we're at stage one, restrictions well what does stage two look like well we haven't defined that and we don't really know there's mixed messaging uh should the school shut well maybe but i'm sending my children to school uh yeah going to lockdown but i'm going to the league it's just treated as a bit of a joke it, it's people say well it can't be that serious if that's what our leader's showing us i completely understand that there are different priorities for the prime minister and i think transparency would be the key here we get that he's balancing keeping the economy afloat in addition to trying to manage the impact of covid mm. so say that you can say i'm receiving this advice and i'm tempering it with keeping the economy afloat because i want to see jobs at the end i'm yeah. not going to get it right all the time this is paranoia of of defending your position day by day mm. instead of going, yeah, yeah you're absolutely right i'm saying something different from yesterday and something different again from last week. I agree with you. That's because it's dynamic and I, my leadership needs to be dynamic with that. And yeah. if you want to pick me up each time I change it, well, you're going to see it a lot more as well. Hmm. And I'm not going to yeah. pick one opinion and stick to it for two weeks because that would be inappropriate. I just think the messaging would be so easy because if you went hard early, it would be win-win for you. Because hmm. then if it doesn't play out as bad as what you think, you can say, well, that's because we went hard. Yeah. And if it is terrible, you go, well, gee, lucky we went early. The cruise ships are classic, you know? Oh, it's, you know, it's a shocker. Yeah. Should those people have allowed to be disembarked? And the Deputy Chief Met Officer last night says, immediately defends the position. Instead of saying, you're absolutely right, they should never have been allowed to do that. That's a state that, decision, though, isn't it? I mean, those were state-based decisions. And I think this is where we've got a fundamental issue in Australia with Federation. Um, it didn't work. Um, for, what I find is that when you have a bottom-up activation, so seen to you know police operation centres and and command systems and those sort of things, you find that emergency management systems tend to work okay. Yeah, and that's a, probably a big generalisation, but you'll find that they tend to work. Where you've got large scale, um, in essence, here a top-down requirement to to activate or Comparing, uh, comparing that to the fires as well, you've got mass scale impact of disasters across across you know most of the country. Then then that's where I feel that our federated models don't work, and and I think that we are less resilient than New Zealand, who who have a, a much simpler way of handling those natural disasters, those issues. So, do you think it's part of the system here that's at fault, or is it? Is it the you know, leadership or is it a bit of both? I think the system here is prone to exploitation in terms of avoiding responsibility. And I think mm. we saw that with New South Wales Premier when she's asked who made the decision. The response is, well, we all need to take responsibility for that. Well, no, <laughs> we don't actually. You do. And the yeah. Prime Minister does. And we need to see a little bit more of that. And, you know, we know people are human. We know leaders are human. And... I think you've touched on it in a, your podcast and that sometimes showing vulnerability 
is a really powerfully important part of being a leader, acknowledging that I'm not going to get it right every time, but you know what? I'll do my best. And, um, you know, the Beaconsfield podcast that you did was a classic example of that, just humility and leadership saying, I will take advice and I'll do my best, but I'm not going to get it right every time. It's okay to do that. Yeah. Instead of defending what is clearly a wrong decision. Um, yeah, and I think that's a, that's a, the classic of um, classic of the ask covering activity that we're seeing, and uh, and unfortunately we can't afford to have that in these times. You know, we think they're not going to get it right every time. We get that, no. and we're not all going to agree on the outcome and the decisions. Um, be transparent, be clear. Um, if you need to pivot on something and, and change it then reinforce the message that this is a dynamic process. Uh, but when each one of your representatives comes up and just tolls the party line, then we lose confidence in, in what's happening. We lose, it loses authenticity. Uh, it's fine for the, the chief medical officer wants to say, well, well, yeah, you're right. I don't understand the hairdresser rule. That's not, mm. that's not what I would have recommended. Yeah. Yeah. It should be fine to say that. And the Prime Minister can say, yep, I took that advice and I've made the decision because of these reasons, because of the economy or whatever. And we don't have to agree with it, but mm -hmm. we get transparency on it. And I think yeah. there just seems to me to be a lack of clarity and lack of transparency uh, and this constant desire to shore up your previous decision mm. rather than just accepting that yeah you know what it is different to yesterday and i've learned from yesterday and maybe i didn't get that one right but i'll get the next one right yeah and if yeah, i'm on. learning each day and getting better well you should be encouraged that by the end of this i'll be good at it yeah <laughs> but we're not getting the sense that the decision making is getting any better i don't get the sense that it's getting better and when we back flip on i'm disappointed tremendously in my own profession mm. that we cancelled elective surgery and then we open it up again for another week. Yeah. Um, yeah. And maybe the way that, you know, I found out about that through the media, I don't know what consultation was done, but then it backflipped. Mm. We made up this 30 minute rule for the hairdresser and then that backflipped. Yeah. Each time we do that, you're degrading leadership, I feel. Yeah. Well, well intentioned, but it's degradation of message. So this is not a time we, we want to, you know, to be concerned about the economy or politics, if you're strong and decisive and do the right thing that needs to be done and people respect that politics, I think traditionally in these situations get put aside and, and we've seen it in corporate crises, whatever yeah. issues you might have with your CEO or project manager, you'll tend to shelve if he's stepping up and doing what needs to be done Yeah. in the crisis, right? Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, I think there's, I've been, I think it was a real chance to, to shine and I'm, I'm not convinced that that happened. Uh, and it, I, I see I'm not as clear as what's happening in the New South Wales ministry level. I know that within my own hospital and our own department, I've been really proud of the leadership that's been shown. Mm -hmm. People have actually stepped up and went, okay, I know what needs to be done. We're stopping elective surgery. Um, Ramsey Healthcare, who runs a lot of private hospitals the other day, said despite the government saying you can keep doing elective surgery, we're not going to tolerate it. And yeah. they've stopped it on their own bat. I mean, what that tells you is that, that they don't actually fundamentally agree with the message. They're doing their I own. I agree. Yeah, you, well, you, know, you just think, well, and it's the same with, you know, the schools. Uh, exactly. 
there's a lot, there's not many doctors are sending their kids to school. Let me tell you that much. So most of us pulled our kids out of school a long time ago. Um, That's interesting because the reason that they were touting that they kept that policy in place was to support frontline workers like yourself. So what do you say to that? Look, I, I, I get that it's reasonable that you want to have a, the school open. So let's say both parents are nurses or, or, yeah. and there's a six year old and you know, one of you got to stop working that you've got an avenue for your child to go somewhere to a safe environment and continually. So I think that's reasonable, but when you put in a message to say, well, the schools are not allowed to close or the school's funding will get stripped if they close, then the schools mm-hmm. are staying open for the wrong reasons. Um, again, mixed messaging, people aren't quite sure what's going on. Can I go to the beach or can't I? And again, you compare that to the New Zealand example where it's just very, very clear Mm. about what we're doing, what you need to do, why we're doing it and where this is going. Um, And potentially, you know, I'm sure New Zealand's thinking about this already, whenever this ends, however weeks or months, New Zealand might be the place that everyone goes to, right? for their holiday because yeah. they'll, they'll be COVID free. Potentially they might have a system where you get screened before you arrive or on arrival and they'll be open up for business for anybody else. I mean, if you actually control COVID, you'll control your economy anyway. I don't know that having the split priorities is working. Do you? No. And I think you've nailed it there. Controlling it will control the outcome. And, and I think controlling what you can control right now is things such as your border access and border control measures. I mean, those simply haven't been stringent enough, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, given that we know that the main source of, uh, of transmission has been from international uh, travel coming into Australia. So, I mean, to, to finally get to a position where we're actually quarantining people in, in, in hotels, etc. now, after after three or four weeks of, of of monitoring and seeing this impact is astounding. It is. Yeah, I think we left it just really too late. And even even if you say, okay, it was maybe maybe we're a week too late or maybe we're a you know but this was two to three weeks ago. This was being called out. And and the whole idea in that delay phase from the WHO is also around delaying arrival. You know, so um, and there was still, you know, the monitoring that was going on state by state, well, there's not been too many, you know, human to human transmission cases in the States. But as soon as that did eventuate, you'd think again, okay, well, that's another clear trigger. It's another clear trigger to escalate. And unfortunately, like you said, we saw those situ- situations with the, with the ships and, and others still traveling in and still people, you know, moving out in the community. Well, look, at you, you had examples to follow. I mean, we had that luxury that didn't break out here first. We saw multiple countries and multiple models of dealing with it. We saw the UK yeah. model that said, well, we're going to go for this herd immunity and see how that works. Um, and obviously it's been an unmitigated disaster. Yeah. So w- we've had a chance to see these models with, yeah. with advance notice, right? We've each country's had a good two to three week lag. Mm. Yet we just sort of waited and waited and waited and waited. Um, that that was frustrating as a healthcare worker to watch that. Um, so anyway, look, we, we're here. We're we're here now. Uh, I think we're moving definitely in the right direction. I know if you, in our hospital, I feel that we're as prepared as we can be. 
we're expecting this week's going to be a big week. Um, we initially had projected that within nine days we would be overwhelmed, uh, as in by the end of this week coming. Mm -hmm. uh, it's looking better than that now. Uh, we've certainly got people coming in that are needing to be intubated and ventilated. Uh, time will tell how it's gone. Oh, we just don't want to get to that situation where we're overwhelmed and we're having to make decisions about who gets ventilated and who doesn't. And it, is, that your, is that your biggest fear at the moment? I think so. I mean, I think for most people it would be being forced to make that call and also getting infected yourself. I think yeah. as a healthcare worker, you know, when we've got a patient, we, we can sort of give lots of euphemisms. Okay, we're going to drift you off to sleep now and we're just going to pop a tube in your throat and we're going to breathe for you and all this gentle language that makes people feel calm. But as a healthcare worker, I know exactly why I'm being intubated because my lungs have failed. And my fear then is, well, if my lungs have failed and I'm getting put to sleep on a ventilator, there's a possibility that I'm not going to be waking up from this. Hmm. Um, and so there, I think there's, there's that fear as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, um, I think those are the decisions we're worried about and the, the messaging to the lack of clarity of that messaging has been a bit, I get the impression people feel that young people don't get it, that somehow it's just, a, I've heard it called boomer flu. I've, heard, yeah. I've seen, I've got three teenage sons and I've, I watch the language that's going on in their social media. And one of them showed me something today that said, this is payback for not listening to us about climate change. You didn't listen to us. So you know what? We're not going to listen to you this time. Wow. Yeah. Like, okay you get that young people are the ones that are also being intubated. Yeah. And, uh, and I think what we need to do is take the media teams around the 18, 20, 30 year olds that are on mm -hmm. ventilators and intensive care. It is not an boomer's flu. It's not an old person's disease because if you're saying to people, you need to yeah. socially isolate just in case you pass it on to someone, person you've never met. <laughs> oh, it, there's no motivation. There's no self-preservation. Zero there. motivation. Yeah, yeah, zero motivation there, yeah. And maybe that's why we saw places in Bondi full of people and, uh, you know, I'm sure Bondi wasn't alone. They've just been sort of targeted. But I can see now why that message failed because if that was your message, then people go, well, I don't care. It doesn't, it's not going to bother me. Yeah, I might get it. If I, if I get it, I'll get a bit of a cold. No big deal. Had a cold before. Yeah. yeah. But if we show that if you're a smoker or a vapor, uh, or you've got one other thing wrong with you, like diabetes or obesity or something else, that your mortality has gone to about ten percent mm. from the time you you get it and you're symptomatic. Well, maybe that'll have a bit more direct impact. Or do you want to be responsible for giving it to your girlfriend, boyfriend, child, whatever, who then dies from it? I mean, yeah, that's the, we've got to make people feel that it's important, and I'm not sure we've done that. I think it's convenient to say that it's going to affect older people only in these things. Yeah. And I think it's part of that optimism bias that, you know, it's not going to happen to me. It's only going to affect older people. Therefore I don't really, you know, and, and I find myself too, you know, um, thinking about it in those ways. I think, well, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm healthy. I'm, I'm fit. I've had a few issues over in the past around respiratory issues over the journey, but you know, I think that, you know, if I got it, I'll be okay. It's, that's what I think the real challenge here is, and particularly for the young younger people now. 
the potential here, I think, is is what they're missing completely. So, I mean, how would you suggest that they'd be best educated further about what the impact is for them specifically? I've seen some good memes and, and short videos and things. You know, that's that's hmm. the, that's the medium that that I think a lot of people get their information from. Hmm. It, uh, so we need sort of short, sharp visual messages that show the exponential growth. And, that, and if you can knock that down, that you significantly reduce that. So we need yeah. to see demonstrable results of social distancing and hand washing mm. elsewhere. There's some not enough videos showing this is how you actually wash your hands. I saw one where someone's still washing their hands with black ink to show. Yeah. If you don't do it properly, it doesn't get over all your hands. Um, yeah. I saw another post from. Is that the one with the gloves? Yeah, with yes, blacking. Yes. Yeah, that's amazing. That one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Good, isn't it? Um, yeah. Th that needs to be widespread. There was a GP in the US who's got a great little video I saw uh, this morning, showing how to. He said, "Imagine you the virus is glitter, and that soap kills it, and you've got glitter on your hands, and you've got." He shows how to unpack your groceries. Okay. Because. The, the virus lives, say, on cardboard for 24 hours. We know that. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So if you're buying a cereal packet, you should be taking it out, the plastic out of the cardboard and then getting rid of the cardboard. Um, mm. Having a dirty and clean part of your kitchen bench because we know it stays on surfaces for a long time. Yeah. Um, I mean, how many people are, are doing that, right? Um, no, no, exactly. I mean, we, we've, we've. Uh, I, I think there was some confusing messaging around that, but um, which was really concerning yesterday when I saw uh, Professor Peter Doherty's interview on Channel Nine, where he was saying, "Well, cardboard, twenty-four hours. And I think plastic wrapping is can be three days." Mm. So, what are the? And that was that was conflicting with the other um, advice that we'd sort of seen around sort of seven-hour time frame. So. So what are those sort of timeframes that you're aware of there? So 24 hours for cardboard and, and what was the timings for the other sort of types? Of, uh, uh, look, I, I, don't, I couldn't quote them to you, Grant, mm. specifically, and, and there's, there's data there, but it's certainly, it's, it's heightened my awareness such that yeah. I, you know, uh, the message we're giving to my children is, right, mm. every time you walk in and out of the house, you're coming and washing your hands for 20 seconds. Um, yeah obviously meal times and everything else, but I said minimum six to seven times a day, mm -hmm. occasionally I'm going and wiping down all the, the door handles and things that we use. I wipe down the car, like the car yeah. handles and uh, things like that. For me, when I look before I leave work, I fully shower, I get changed again to a clean set of clothes to come home with. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know what, if the kids have, you know, been even out walking, they come back and so, there's that component and then I think keeps their awareness going that this thing is around and it's active and it can be touching surfaces and every time you go out, you increase exposure. Um, and I think if we had recurrent messages like that on TV, on social media and elsewhere, I think the social distancing thing we've done to death a bit, but mm. we could be doing a bit more on reminding about hand washing and wiping surfaces and mm. those sorts of things. I think the message would be clearer the great challenge is going to be sustaining that yeah, and the complacency that's going to be inevitably set in, right? Um, and we layer into that job loss and other stresses. Well, yeah, we've certainly got our work cut out. Mate, what if uh, you put the crystal ball 
pull out the crystal ball and and um, look forward that six months? What what would you sort of see, or what do you think is going to be the the changes we're going to see in our world over that time? Yeah, look, we'll get through this. I mean, if there's any culture that prevails in adversity, it's our one, and it's in our DNA to prevail. So there's no doubt that we'll prevail. And I think we, if we, if we are positive about this then we're going to see a huge amount of positive change and the way people do business. We're already seeing a, you know, in our department, for example, we're having department meetings by zoom and people mm. have already said, God, we should keep doing this. It's so much more efficient. I mean, yeah. there's enormous efficiency being created when we realize how few, how little we actually need to get into a room together. Yeah. Um, and the number of businesses that have been creative about online learning and platforms and other means of, of learning, um, perhaps people within society, maybe this has been a bit of a time of reflection again, being faced with your own mortality mm. helps you to audit a bit of a self audit about what's important in life. Maybe we'll see a bit more reaching out and connecting with people. Yeah. Um, I, I would hope that down that when we're through this, that we're better for the experience. We usually are. I mean, companies are better for a crisis. You don't, not wish a crisis to happen when it happens you're like good it's here let's do it let's do it well and learn from it and you know it's character building it's 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 company building it's all those things so i think if we if we keep that message positive that this is actually a really useful thing for to be the best version of yourself like how do i be a leader yeah sure i'm worried but yeah in my own family well i'm the doctor like my family's looking to me to, to not show fear. And yeah. if you're medical at all, you know, I've said to people, when you go home, even if you think, well, I've got no say in this, the fact that you work in the medical field means your family's looking to you for leadership. They think you've got the answers. Society, our community is looking to us as a group for leadership. Um, it doesn't mean leadership doesn't mean you've got the answers it just means look calm, look collected, be positive. Uh, be supportive, be clear. Uh, and we can all do that. We don't have to be medical to do that. No, so you're right. If we use that as an opportunity, then that's going to be a really positive thing, I think. Um, so that's where I would hope we would be. Mm. Well, I guess time will tell. We may, we may get overwhelmed in certain situations, for sure. I hope we don't, but we'll certainly plan for it. And I think we'll be proud of the way we behaved and the proud of what we did. Mate, I'm proud of what you've just said then. I'm, I'm proud of you and your, your friends and colleagues and everyone else out there that is addressing that fear every day, mate. And uh, uh, I'm proud that you're one of my friends as well and, and, and really appreciate you sharing your insights, mate, again with us on Crisis Talks. So Bill Bestick, thanks very much, mate. Pleasure, mate. Good on you, Grant.